Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, best-selling author, uh, lecturer, uh, lover of literature, and PhD. I cannot wait today to dive into How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So I'm someone who um, can sometimes be a bit ambivalent about the holidays, but I also really love them. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot. There's a lot this time of year. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of energy, a lot of things happening. Um, but one of the things that is really enduring for me are the picture books that we have for this season. It is such a delight to dive today into one of the most iconic children's books of all time. That is, of course, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I must say that I was actually really gearing up to do a little seminar on A Child's Christmas in Wales, because that is a story by Dylan Thomas that has a lot of uh, resonance and meaning for me. But then I happened to be on a flight, and some very strange instinct made me want to watch How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the new, like, I don't know who made it, Pixar maybe, um, a new animated version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I think I was trying to get myself into the holiday mood. So I started watching the movie and was so taken. I mean, it has been a long time since I've watched an animated film and they have really come a long way. But what was so striking to me was that they had built in um, a whole backstory for Mary, for Mary, wow, what's her name? For Cindy Lou Who. And they had built in a whole backstory for the Grinch himself. And it made me start wondering, um, you know, whether or not the book had any of this kind of backstory, whether or not we had any real sense about why these people were acting the way they were acting. My hunch was that no. My hunch was that, in fact, this like full-length feature film was, in fact, adding in a lot of backstory. But this also brought me, watching this movie, also brought me to this question of these children's classics that really endure, and children's classics that uh, endure particularly for me, the ones that I found very resonant and that still seem resonant and still kind of call to me over all these decades. Books like Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Frog and Toad, uh, The Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, Harriet the Spy, Little House on the Prairie, lots and lots of uh, titles that we have gotten to in the past here at the Fox page and we will get to in the future if we have not already. But The Grinch definitely settles into that category. So I think the reason that I had that weird impulse on the airplane to watch the story was in fact because I, I was it was the same impulse as um, you know wanting to go back and look closely at the prose in Frog and Toad. It's this sense of like, why do these things endure? And boy, was this fruitful. I mean, it turns out that our uh, the way that we are drawn to How the Grinch Stole Christmas is really, I think, so interesting. So this turned out to be just like an even more satisfying deep dive than I thought it was going to be. So those of you who are watching on the YouTube, um, I don't even think I need to explain anything about the, about the hairdo or about the outfit. I'm just gonna let it stand at that. Um, for those of you who uh, are just listening to the podcast, maybe you'll have to uh, pop over to the uh, Fox Page Instagram or the Fox Page YouTube channel if you would like to see the images, not just of me and my outfit and my background, which is very festive, but if you would like to see all of the images that I will refer to throughout the lecture. And there are some doozies here, people. I mean, there are some very, very good visuals coming down the pike for anyone on the YouTube channel. Okay, so we're gonna really dig into this enduring presence. Uh, Dr. Seuss is one of the most uh, high earning, but also like most, most, most successful children's authors of all time. And I think for very good reason. There's lots and lots of inventive language in his work. He's kind of that double threat of um, like an incredible illustrator and an incredible prose stylist, which it's always um, so interesting to me to look back at favorites, either from my childhood or the books that I read to my children and think about who is writing them versus who is illustrating them. And whenever it's the same person, I'm always just like, oh my God, what a genius. And Dr. Seuss, there is a unique and kind of wacky and almost kind of unsettling and sort of like uh, sort of objectively unattractive aesthetic that is so deeply resonant and so deeply attractive on some level um, that I really was excited to, to revisit. I think that, um, you know, now there's like a, there's a Dr. Seuss font 
There is a font called Grinch. I think there is this, this um, you know, he has reached icon status, certainly for Americans who are my age, 54. You definitely, um, you know, probably grew up with some Dr. Seuss, as did generations before and generations after. So as I said, it was it's really been a fun thing to deep dive into because I knew that the prose was going to be excellent and we are going to get to that. We're going to discuss why the prose and why the illustrations are so unbelievable. But there also was all kinds of other stuff about Dr. Seuss that I found absolutely fascinating. One of the things that happened that was so weird for me is that I walked into the bookstore, my local bookstore, Kepler's Books, here in Menlo Park, and was going to get myself a copy of How the Grinch Stole Christmas because we didn't have any. Weirdly, or maybe not weirdly, the only Dr. Seuss that we had was the Sneetches. So I went in to go buy a copy of it at Kepler's and the woman handed me a book that looked like How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And then she said, do you also want the sequel? And I was like, what? And she's like, oh yeah, there's a sequel. And I was like, how is there a sequel? Dr. Seuss is dead. And she's like, yeah, it's weird. They brought him back from the grave. And then we started laughing. Um, they did not, in fact, bring him back from the grave. It's actually like weirder than that, which is, although it's not, it's just like a total capitalist thing. Some artist and uh, writer duo, I will remember their names in a moment, um, that have continued this sort of Dr. Seuss legacy, which is, of course, very much in the interest of the Dr. Seuss estate, um, at one point, Dr. Seuss was the most high, um, like, uh, grossing dead celebrity. So there's this very sort of lucrative machine that is churning out these uh, sequels. And I just, it had not occurred to me, in fact, that the legacy was continuing. And tell you the truth, the book that she handed me was actually the sequel. It was called How the Grinch Lost Christmas. It was a red book. No, it was a green book. It was a green book. This is the one she handed me, How the Grinch Lost Christmas. And then right next to it, of course, was How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But of course, I was like, wait, what, what is happening here? Why are there two different versions? And actually, How the Grinch Lost Christmas, if you're on the YouTube here, it's got this nice um, you know, foil kind of cover. It's actually like stealing some thunder from How the, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which is actually kind of weird and maybe not that great. But I walked out of there with both books and uh, quite a chip on my shoulder. I just was not into the idea of a sequel. I was not into the idea of capitalizing on this genius man um, who is also problematic, which we are going to get to. But I, I just was like, wait, I am not going to like this. I am not with this. I don't love the idea of a sequel. It was so charming. It um, is very different than the original, and I will persuade you all, I hope, um, as to sort of why it wasn't a complete success, but I have to say it was kind of a joy to read. I mean, when you have someone whose prose is so unique and so uh, just joyful to read and so inventive and so like well, well done, it is a pleasure to have more of it. Uh, I'm not totally, totally endorsing the sequel, but I'm like kind of endorsing the sequel. Okay, those of you who like an agenda, I'm gonna lay out the agenda. We're gonna talk about his biography very briefly. We're going to talk about some of the controversial aspects of Dr. Seuss's legacy. We are then going to talk about the Grinch itself and why I think it has this enduring legacy. Uh, then we are going to talk about the sequel and some of the uh, strengths and weaknesses therein. And then we're gonna close by talking about why the prose, which is in fact poetry, why the poetry, why the text of these books is, well, of all of Dr. Seuss's oeuvre, why it is so, so strong and why it is, I think, still so resonant. So the biography, Dr. Seuss, Theodore Seuss Geisel, I'm, I'm slowing down like that when I'm saying it because it's called like his middle name. It's not Seuss. It's like Swayce or something. Um, I learned that, by the way, some of this information. I read a whole bunch of interviews, as I always do, and lots of articles and different things. Um, and uh, Things You Should Know, that podcast, they, those two guys are really cracking me up. At one point, they were talking about how um, one of his, one of Dr. Uh, Seuss's imprints was the guy's like, I think it's Houghton Mifflin. And the other guy was like, no, it's Dunder Mifflin. And I really got a kick out of that. Um, that's a little office reference for some of you uh, who aren't totally into the office, you know, cosmos. But he's a very storied person, and I knew nothing about him other than that he was a graduate of Dartmouth College, also my alma mater. Uh, I did know that. 
and I knew that he died in 1991 because I was at Dartmouth. That was the last year I was there in 1991. And they did this very cool thing where for 24 hours, they read his books on the steps of one of the main buildings. And it was kind of an around the clock, you know, tag team thing where somebody was always reading his work, which I thought was, um, it was very moving. And uh, we were all very aggrieved to find out that he had died the year we were graduating. So Dr. Seuss Theodore Seuss um, Geisel was born in Springfield. Oh my God, dog. I have a dog coming. Mm, it's not close to the tree. It's not good. Um, uh, he was born in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1904. He was from a German family, which I think he got kind of teased and bullied for. Um, and uh, he, his grandfather and father both ran the family brewery. And the guys from Things You Should Know made the point that like it would be so like prohibition was crazy for everybody. But if your family business was a brewery, like what a bummer, you know? I mean, here's this like German, you know, tradition that they have brought to the United States as immigrants. They're doing very well. And then, um, you know, prohibition kind of really put an end to the family, the Geisel family uh, tradition there. But he went on to Dartmouth. He worked, uh, he was already illustrating and writing at that point um, in, in the humorist magazine there, which is called The Jack-O-Lantern. He was apparently kicked off that because of drinking, um, which is actually very typical of Dartmouth College. There's kind of a gross amount of drinking that happens there. And um, apparently, maybe it was also during prohibition. Mm, let's see, 1904, could have been. No, 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 Prohibition's a little later. Anyway, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm no historian here. May or may not have been during Prohibition. But then he went to Oxford in England. He was going to be a teacher, met a woman there, Helen Palmer, who ended up being his wife. The next thing was so surprising to me, which is that he never had kids, never wanted kids, very famously said something like, um, you have the children, I'll entertain them. That was like his like tagline, you know, or would be now if he was like, Dr. Seuss, you have the children, I'll entertain them, that kind of a thing. His second wife he married did have two children. Um, I read something so interesting. Um, there was a lot of stuff about how he didn't really like his stepdaughters and how he sent them off to boarding school and how he was like this kind of curmudgeonly guy who didn't like kids. And after her mother died, his stepdaughter wrote this really nice rebuttal of that and said that... Um, it was just such a dream growing up with him. And when she was nine years old, he became her um, step-pop. And how there was no door to his office, and he used to draw these little pictures for them, and he would drop them on them, which I think is kind of a weird way to say that. But apparently he drew these cute little um, cartoony drawings and, and dropped them on his stepdaughters. Apparently maybe they were on the floor or at a desk. I don't know. Um but that he was very warm and, and very sort of whimsical and, and really uh, that they had this really nice family bond, which I was so happy to hear. I didn't really love feeling like he was a curmudgeon, but I mean, you know, people are real. People are real. And he was not into kids. Important note, he did want to be a novelist in the very beginning. Um, and there, there's kind of this whole tale, may or may not be apocryphal, that he was walking along um, and ran into a Dartmouth uh, alumnus who was a classmate of his. And he happened to have a manuscript copy in his pocket of a children's book he was working on. And this kind of young and hungry, uh, col not colleague, peer of his, um, took the manuscript and published it, and the rest is history. So um, he was not really very successful, apparently, at becoming a novelist. When he went to Oxford, he thought he would be a teacher. He did fight in World War II, although I think he spent, he didn't, I don't think he saw like actual combat. Um, but he, during that time, was very, this is very important to me, he was very anti-fascist. Um, in fact, Yertle the Turtle was actually like, it's an anti-authoritarian book and it was certainly very anti-Hitler, like very specifically anti-Hitler. And for those of you on the YouTube channel, I'm gonna throw up a couple of political cartoons. For a long time, he was working as a satirist and a political cartoonist. Can you hear that dog? Can you hear that dog? I'm gonna show you the dog, there she, there she is. There she is. You can see her. She wants to go out. She's over by the door. Oh my God. Um, I might have to go let her out. Anyway, um, so he did work as a political cartoonist. So I'll throw some of those up there. And he was very anti-authoritarian, anti-fascist, also very anti-isolationist. So that's the cartoon I'm showing right now. He was really not into this whole American thing. Like, we're just going to let the rest of the world have its problems and we're not going to intervene. 
that was not to his liking. He very much um, wanted to become involved in the war in order to help uh, people who were suffering in Europe. So he went on to have um, a modicum of success with his uh, children's work. And then in the middle of the 50s, he had like some enormous year. I think in one year, he wrote The Cat in the Hat. Um, and then um, there was like some challenge by his editor to write a book that was shorter, um, to write a book that was 50 words. And Green Eggs and Ham ended up being exactly that book. And both of those books were um, meant to be like reading primers for children. They were meant to like help children learn how to read. And um, it, I think it's really, when we talk about the prose, you will see why, in fact, his work would have been so appealing to children and why there would be thinking that this would make reading easier for children, because there's a certain amount of repetition. Certainly in those books, there's lots of repetition. There's short little words. But you also have this beautiful sing-songy poetic thing happening. So he always writes in something called anapestic tetrameter, which we will get to later. Um, but it's a, it's a really appealing and very consistent kind of rhythm. And then he also writes almost always in rhymed couplets. So if you think about, you know, how much easier it is to learn something in a song than just to memorize words, he was really helpful in terms of teaching children how to read because he was able to uh, he was able to put this in this kind of sing-songy uh, and, and also predictable and somewhat repetitive language that was much more intuitive for children than than simply uh, prose. And I believe it was the same year when Cat in the Hat came out that he also wrote The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, big year. Big, big year for Teddy Geisel. I don't know if he went by Teddy, but I'm just throwing that out there now. Um, and so that it was like from then on, it was just like hugely, hugely successful. He helped with the television adaptation soon thereafter, which is the one that people still watch. I mean, this is 1957. This is like whatever, 66 years ago? No. I can't be right. I may have just done that math correctly. I don't know. Um, it, it's it's astonishing, actually, that that we have this kind of endurance, and we're going to get to why. But um, it, it was a very big year for him, and then at that point, things sort of took off. So we are not going to spend a lot of time talking about the controversy. If if anyone is interested in in art that is made, art that we love being made by reprehensible people, I would refer you to uh, Claire. Her name has just gone right out of my head. Um, it's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. It's really, really good. Um, and, and she writes, she has a really excellent defense of Nabokov, Claire Dieterer. So if you go back to the Fox page, you can listen to that lecture about uh, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. It's really, I think, a very compelling way to think about these, these pieces of art that we aren't sure what to do with, given um, some really uh, terrible things maybe that their writer, that their author has done. In the case of Dr. Seuss, the controversy has come with some of the depictions that he made of um, people who are from Asia and people who are from Africa. And they are super insensitive and really terrible. And um, it's a little bit like with some of the Agatha Christie. There has been some sort of um, you know, discontinuing of any of the stories that were uh, offensive to people. But one thing that I that I kind of stand by, I don't remember any of those. I don't know if they were like already out of circulation by the time, you know, I was reading these books in the early 70s. But I do know that his his work got sort of progressively more progressive as time went on. He wrote things like the Sneetches, which I mean, part of the reason why we have that, and we're going to get to this, is that the Sneetches is all about being inclusive. And it's all about, it's actually very anti-capitalist too, which I probably liked. Um, but it, but there is this sense of like not uh, judging people just because they look different when in fact they are very similar to us. So, um, and, and things like the Lorax, I mean, there was a lot of um, environmental, environmentally sensitive and also um, like inclusive kind of writing that came from the the body of work that Dr. Seuss created, but there were there were things that were just downright racist. Um, there there was a recognition certainly that these things were not okay, and uh, again his work became more progressive as time went on. In fact, I am going to treat you to the first page of the Sneetches. So here we have the Sneetches and other stories. This was published. I'm just looking at it right here. 
1961. So only four years after the Grinch. Um, and here we have, here, I'm gonna, if you're on the YouTube, here, here they are, here are the Sneetches. Um, and you can um, get the sense of this story right from the, right from the jump. Now, the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small, you might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. So then you can imagine what happens. They are very, very against each other, even though they are almost identical. It's actually so cute. Like, look at the tiny little star on the tummy. It's just, for those of you listening to the podcast, it's just like a tiny little green star on this big um, yellow kind of bird-like creature's belly. Very small little green star. Then what happens is it's very like the... Um, the Music Man, I think that one is called, um, that Broadway musical, where this guy comes into town with this machine that if you pay him a couple of dollars, it will take the star off your tummy or put it on, I can't remember. Um, so everybody gets stars, they pay their money, then everybody decides that they don't want stars, so everybody goes back through the machine and it removes all of their stars. And um, then they realize they've all just been totally bilked out of all of their money. And the guy skips town with his machine that is doing all of this, um, you know, removing and putting on of stars. So everybody uh, has this common enemy in the form of this guy who's come in with this machine, just kind of pandering to their insecurities. And in fact, they all realize that they are equal and they are terrific. And there's this nice kind of anti-capitalist thing happening. So that is a very clear story about inclusion and about understanding difference and about appreciating how much we are all the same. And again, this was 1961. So only four years after uh, after the Grinch. He also is um, is criticized for everybody in the books being white. And he is also criticized, I think, for not a lot of women and girls. I'm not really sure that's true. A lot of his things are kind of ungendered or, um, you know, there, there are a lot of animals throughout all of his, or they're like creatures. They're not quite human. The Grinch, again, they're apparently, I, I didn't dig into this, but there's a big controversy about whether or not the Grinch is like a creature who's wearing a fuzzy green suit or whether the Grinch is in fact like a green furred monster. So I'm, I'm in the latter camp. I'm thinking, I mean, you look at his face, like, I don't know, maybe he's wearing like a very serious balaclava together with his whole suit, but his hands and his feet and his face make me think in fact that he is some sort of green furred creature. Before we dive in, I did learn in my research kind of the origin story of the Grinch, and I think it's actually very informative and good. Um, the Grinch in How the Grinch Stole Christmas is 53 years old, and there is a story that was, I think, in an interview, um, it was quoted in an article that I read, that said that the morning after Christmas, Theodore Geisel looked at himself in the mirror and, and saw someone scowling back at him and wanted to sort of get to this idea of like why he hated Christmas so much, apparently he did not love Christmas. Um, but he didn't. What he didn't love about Christmas was how commercial it had gotten, and all the stuff, and all of the emphasis on all of the kind of trappings of Christmas. So he he challenged himself to write something to sort of um, like resurrect Christmas for himself. Wow, that was a loaded sentence I just said. But you know, to sort of like recapture some of the joy of the season. And what he came up with was the Grinch. So I think we can read this very autobiographically. In fact. Now we're going to dive into the Grinch itself. So I want to um, just take a tiny step back and I'm going to actually show you the picture of the Grinch. Um, you know, I think everybody like can picture him, although it is really interesting to look at him. He's got these like yellow eyes and he's got this kind of weird shock of hair that looks a little like seaweed. Um, and he's got these brows that are very, very highly arched and he's got this weird little smirk. And he, he really does look uh, like you would expect him to, which is like not a nice dude. So there's this sense, you know, that the Grinch, which is, it's so interesting that one of our most enduring stories about Christmas time is really taken up almost the whole thing by this guy who is just such like an curmudgeonly 
cruel. In fact, he's cruel to poor little Max. And some of those pictures are a little heart-wrenching for sure. But you have this guy who is um, cruel. He is, you know, needlessly inflicting like his thoughts and his punishment on this whole entire town. That's just like a little place of, of joy. But you have this idea of him um, and you don't know why, but he's like this very sour kind of um, terrible old curmudgeonly dude. In fact, that's such a pervasive idea that, um, that that Grinch, like if somebody is a Grinch, it's as if they were Scrooge also, which is another very good example of a really not great uh, Christmas time dude. But I think these figures really uh, loom large. In the case of the Grinch, we have this real sense of um, of kind of celebrating him on some level, even though he is this kind of very sour, dour, uh, curmudgeonly guy. Importantly and famously, in Dr. Seuss, in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, there is no explanation for why he is this way. So we don't know why he's so bitter. We don't know why he hates Christmas. We don't know why he wants to ruin it for everyone else. And in fact, Dr. Seuss is very clear about not wanting to uh, explain that. I'm going to read just the very beginning of the book um, and because this part about not asking why the Grinch didn't like Christmas is right at the right at the top, right at the very beginning. So here we're diving in. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why, no one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. So there we have uh, Theodore Geisel telling us right from the start, we don't know why this guy is like this, and that is simply a mystery that you are going to have to live with. It is a mystery that has been sol solved quotation marks uh, intact there. It has been sought to be solved by different adaptations. But in fact, Theodore Geisel is very clear about the fact that we're not meant to ask that question. It's not important why, in fact, he is like that. So the fact that, that Theodore Geisel is telling us not to ask the question is very satisfying to me. So um, I remember a long time ago, Matthew Weiner was talking about, um, he was the creator of Mad Men, and he was talking about how Mad Men, part of the reason why it's so delicious and so interesting is because there is no explanation. It's as if you are like a very young child watching the stuff go down in your parents' generation and just like not fully understanding it and how kind of satisfying that is because so much of life is in fact, like that. So I, I kept thinking about this madman, madmen phenomenon while I was thinking of uh, the Grinch who stole Christmas, because there is this sense of like, you know, everyone has people like that in their lives. Like you just, you don't understand why your neighbor growing up was like this old, scary, curmudgeonly dude. And it's not important. So I'm going to um, break down here a little bit of why I love the idea of not having a backstory and not understanding what is going on with the Grinch. So first of all, there's that sort of childlike thing. Like there's plenty of children who don't understand why their uncle or their grandfather or their grandmother or their aunt is just like terrible and like curmudgeonly and mean and seems just like sour and terrible. Um, you know, you just don't understand that as a child. That's not, it, it, it's not something that needs to be unpacked and unraveled. It's simply a fact. Um, and one that most children, I think, can relate to. So um, there's something, too, that even as an adult, like, there are people who are like that. And in fact, we don't want to know. I mean, at least I don't. Like, I don't, I don't need to know that about everybody I meet. I think it's just enough sometimes to know that this is a person for whatever reason. And I mean... I always am willing and always sort of my my uh, instinct is to be like, oh my gosh, that person probably is having a really hard time or that person historically has had a hard time or that person was not loved as a child. I don't know what the thing is. I don't really care, but I'm like, oh, that is, it's boundaries, people. It's boundaries. I'm like, I don't need to know. I don't need to know all that stuff. I just, I just know what I'm, what I'm seeing. And what I'm seeing is the Grinch stealing all of Christmas from the Who's in Whoville. So um, the, the the next thing I will say is that this also, this idea of not knowing what the backstory is allows every reader to project their kind of own 
vision onto the Grinch. So, you know, if you did have an uncle who was a total jerk because your grandfather was a jerk and that uncle was like, I don't know, the youngest and once did something terrible and his father never loved him. I don't know what the story is, but you can kind of project your own vision onto the Grinch. Or maybe it's as simple as like, again, like your creepy neighbor down the street who was always really scary when you were little. There's this ability to, if we don't have any backstory, there's an ability to project our own experience onto the Grinch, which I think is very freeing and very important that we can really, we can have our own version of the Grinch. One thing that I think is also so important is that then you don't have to sympathize or empathize. So interestingly, um, this I don't think will spoil anything for anyone, but in the animated movie that I watched half of on the airplane, um, they, they have this kind of whole flashback for the Grinch. And I really liked parts of that movie. It was so um, like revelatory for me because it was so inventive and interesting. Like they did such a good job. But I didn't need this whole backstory, which is that one time, I'm, this is right off the top of my head, and you all know that my memory is really bad, so this could be wrong. But um, my memory is that he, uh, they do this flashback to him when he's like in an orphanage and he has a Christmas that's like he's all by himself and it's very sad and he's like lonely and he spends this terrible Christmas. So then, of course, Christmases are always awful to him because he grew up without a family and without any kind of Christmas revelry. Okay, so the problem there is then you have to empathize, or at least you have to sympathize with the Grinch. I'm like, I don't want to sympathize or empathize with more people. I don't want to have to have like something about being like, oh my God, the poor Grinch used to be an orphan. Like that is not the point for me of this story. The point is like, we've got this old dude who for whatever reason is curmudgeonly and terrible and, you know, just like a mean, old, wizened up dude. I don't know why I think he's old. Oh, He's 53. I mean, he literally tells us 53 is a is a baby. That's a young, that's a young spry chicken. But I understand that if you were a child, 53 would seem very old. Okay. And then lastly, the last point I will make about how I don't like a backstory is that I think so many parents can relate. So as you're reading through, there is something really delightful. Um, you know, I think most parents, by the time you're whatever, raising your children, um, you know, there's a certain amount of cynicism that can come with the holidays. There's a certain amount of just like not wanting to do all of the, the stuff and wanting to do all the singing and do all the decorating and all the tree stuff and all the trimmings and all the food and, you know, the who beast. I think that's what it's called. Um, the, the who feast and the who beast. Um, I, you know, there's this sense of like, oh my God, I'm just tired of all this stuff. I would like it to just go away. So there is, I think, a certain cynicism that parents can relate to with the Grinch just because he's like, I don't like Christmas. I mean, I think everybody who's an adult feels like that at some point. But if you're like, oh my gosh, wait, but he's got this whole backstory and like we really are meant to feel sorry for him, it's much more difficult to feel like you can relate to him. In fact, there's an excellent quotation by a guy named Dan Chris who wrote in Slate about um, why there is this kind of enduring, um, you know, affection for the Grinch. So he says this, Many a parent has discovered, reading the book aloud, a certain malevolent zing in performing the Grinch because the stress of the holidays can, at times, activate the Grinch in all of us. 364 days of the year, we insist to our kids that possessions aren't important. And then, on Christmas morning, Santa's largesse hits them like toxic waste. They mutate instantly into acquisitive monsters, ripping the paper off presents and tossing them aside after only a moment's pause to get to the next. So I love that, this idea that that we, um, you know, like every parent can relate a little bit to this Grinchiness, and that in fact, that's part of the fun of the book, certainly when you're reading it as a parent. So, and we can take this kind of one step further, and when we're not even talking about the parents, if we're talking even about the children too, there is a kind of a nuanced look at Christmas in, um, in this story. So we have this kind of anti-commercial feel to it. It's totally not like this kind of saccharine, kind of, um, you know, schmaltzy, sweet, um, you know, old world, you know, sort of Christmas tale. In fact, it's, it's a little edgy and it's a little cynical and, and it's unusual. The prose is unusual. The illustrations are unusual. Uh, and, and I think we really like that. 
And for someone like myself who can be fairly cynical, it's really nice to have that cynicism and that darkness embodied by someone like the Grinch. It is important too that there is this happy ending and the happy ending is this very nice story that everyone can get behind, which is that like singing together is really the point of the, uh, and sharing a meal is really the point of the whole thing. And of course, you know, the Grinch brings back and his sleigh brings back all of their stuff. But really what is emphasized is um, that he carves the roast beast. It's not who beast, it's the roast beast. He carves the roast beast and they share a meal together and they sing and it is, um, you know, everybody is happy and, and sort of appreciating the best things about Christmas, not just the presents. And in terms of endurance, it's really interesting to look at the other things that were published right around that same time and to note the fact that like they did not endure. A lot of that stuff didn't endure. And there are a couple of really beloved things. Like I loved Russell Hoban. I loved all those like Jam for Francis books. And I loved the Mole family. And there was a Mole family Christmas story. I'm putting it up on the YouTube for you to look at the adorable cover. And that did not endure. The Mole family, for whatever reason, it was a little later. It was in the 60s, maybe even early 70s, but that did not endure. We have um, also like Richard Scarry has like the Animals Christmas or whatever it's called. Um, and that also did not endure. We do have a couple of um, stories that did endure, like um, the Charlie Brown Christmas, Mickey Mouse also, you know, like th there's some like the Snoopy thing um, and some of the Disney stuff, like some of that stuff endured, but they were not children's books that endured with the Charles Schultz stuff with Snoopy and with Charlie Brown and um, that children's special that's on the television. Um, that was very much, you know, a, a televised thing and kind of an animated thing and not so much a, uh, a children's book. And it did, you know, the text itself was also amazing, but it really was mostly, um, you know, sort of famously about uh, the, the 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 illustrations. Um, oh my God! And all of those parents, all that was genius. I mean, you have to hand it to Charles Schultz. It's just, it's too good. It's too good. We have those, and then there are actually a whole crop of things. Um, for example, Miss Flimsy's Christmas or Velvet Eyes or a couple of these other things like Howdy Doody Christmas or a Holly Hobby Christmas. I mean, there are a lot of things that were actually fairly familiar from that era to me that did not endure and have not endured and did not end up like spawning a sequel, which is frankly a bit creepy, but also did not, um, you know, uh, uh, did not bring out these huge adaptations that are very much a part of the American Christmas experience. Okay, so now we're going to move on to my experience of the sequel. So um, I did go and I looked at like what the, uh, you know, what the Dr. Seuss or the Theodore Geisel like estate had to say about it. And there was all this rhetoric about how there's like this burning question for people, which is like, what happened after the Grinch's heart grew? And you can totally picture it in the in the um, illustrated version. It's so great. Remember when it grows a couple of sizes and it kind of busts out of that little wire kind of cage thing that it's in? It's so great. I can tell you right now, there was zero part of me that was wondering what was going to happen next. It was so satisfying the way that whole thing was tied up with a bow. I mean, he literally went down and he returned all the stuff and he shared a meal with them and I was fully, fully satisfied. I did not need um, to have this burning question answered for me, which is like, what happens next? So in this book, which is called How the Grinch Lost Christmas, we in fact, here it is, Voila. Um, we, in fact, have this book that ends up feeling, um, it's very much in the spirit. The illustrations are very sweet. I like the prose. It's very much in keeping. It's in tone. It's very well done on lots of levels. However, I didn't really love the message behind it. So the, the sort of burning question that they are answering, the estate, is this idea of like, he has to prove to them how much he loves Christmas now which also just doesn't seem that plausible to me. Like I could see him being like, wait, these people are actually cool. I'm gonna go down and sing with them and I'm gonna you know, break bread. I'm gonna carve the wild beast, um, the roast beast, but I am not, um, you know, like he, it's not all of a sudden he's like some major Christmas person, but he decides in fact, he's not even a person, I don't think. He decides in fact that he's gonna like really prove to them how much he loves Christmas and the way he's going to do it 
spoiler alert, is enter this contest with the most like decorated tree, which honestly, like the whole idea of like whose house can have like the most, 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 you know, lights on it and stuff, all of this like really competitive, weird American excessive stuff really doesn't sit well with me. So I didn't really love this idea that he was like, you know, going to show them who was best, who was the most, you know, Christmas loving of them all. He makes, of course, this gigantic tree. And I think you might be able to guess who makes a teeny tiny but very cute tree. That is Cindy Lou Who. So they go to do the judging and you will be shocked to know that Cindy Lou Who with her tiny little cute tree wins and that, doc that Dr. Seuss and that the Grinch with his giant, fabulous, incredible, huge tree comes in second place. So this ends up being this whole tale. It's kind of this didactic, weird, um, I mean, that's a little heavy handed, but like it's definitely like meant to teach us something. And it's this lesson about how to lose gracefully and this thing about how, you know, the underdog, like little Cindy Lou Who with her little tiny tree, in fact, can prevail. I mean, I like the resonance of like how the Grinch stole Christmas and how the Grinch lost Christmas. I think that's kind of clever, but I don't really love the idea that it has been sort of spun into this thing about like how to lose gracefully. Finally, we are going to get to the part of the lecture today that I've been excited about most, uh, which is to take a really close look at the prose. It's not going to be a long section. I mean, it is incredible poetry, in fact, what Theodore Geisel is uh, including in these incredible books. So I'm going to, again, read pages one and two of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. So I'm reading that to you again in order to um, give you a little better sense of the of the sort of the cadence and the meter and the the like rhyme scheme, all of the sort of beautiful things that we're going to dive into. So all of Dr. Seuss's work, almost all of it, is in something called anapestic tetrameter. I mentioned that before. Very famously, he um, was on some sort of ship ride with his first wife, Aunt Helen Palmer, and who was an author on, of her own, right? Also, I think Dr. Seuss was kind of a philanderer, which is a real bummer, but there you have it. I mean, again, this is that thing where you have to make your own calculus. If you're not into um, supporting someone or reading your kids something that is written by a philanderer, I don't know if we should say philander anymore. I feel like that kind of gets him off the hook. He was an adulterer. I don't think we say that either. I don't know. He was unfaithful to his wife. All of these are sounding so antiquated to me. So, so he and his wife, Helen Palmer at the time, were on a ship and he um, was very struck by this kind of droning rhythm of the engines. And it turns out that he then wrote all of his stuff, like almost across the board, in that sort of matched this droning throb of the engines of the ship. Turns out that what he was hearing was something called an anapest. So an anapest is a simple, so in poetry, like a unit of poetry is called a foot. So you can have an iamb, for example, or you can have an anapest. So an anapest is a, is a, is a foot. Uh, it's like a little unit of poetry. And it's two short syllables followed by a long syllable. So it's two quick little beats followed by a long beat. So words like um, disbelief. So you have two little syllables, but leaf is where the emphasis of the word is, disbelief, um, or, um, or understand. So you have understand, the emphasis there is on understand. So those are single words that are anapestic words, but what he will do is um, have two short syllables and then the emphasis is on the third. So this is this kind of, it's this, it just moves right along. It kind of propels you forward because the weight on each foot is at the end. So it's an anapest, two short syllables followed by a longer syllable with more emphasis. And tetrameter, tetra being four, tetrameter is just means that we have four of these little units. So you have da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. So almost all of his uh, work is going to fall into that. So, you know, we in here at the Fox page, we talk a lot about, um, you know, asking so what. It's sort of like when we talked about Shakespeare as being an iambic pentameter. And importantly, that is the way that the heart beats. It's like da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. 
da-da. This is different. This is a little more lively. It's a little quicker. Um, it just really kind of moves right along in kind of a jolly kind of way. Um, that's da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. It's a little um, faster. It's really perfect for one-syllable words, which is very good for children. So it's a very uh, good kind of meter for him to be using. But I really love the idea. I hope the story is true, um, th that he sort of picked it up from, um, you know, the sound of these engines. And lots of poetry is, um, you know, it does come like from the heartbeat or from the sound of an engine. I think a lot of poetry is are these sort of um, like important kind of ambient or physical sounds that we hear around us that we adapt our speech to because they're these kind of inherently pleasant rhythms. The other thing about his work, it's in um, anapestic tetrameter. It's also in rhymed couplets. So there's a lot of internal rhyme, which means that there's rhyming that's happening even within a single line. But it, it, he always is, um, he has this very kind of satisfying and very cohesive, um, you know, rhymed couplets. So it's like A, A, B, B, C, C. And sometimes it's CCC, but it's this very satisfying, very predictable thing, which again is very helpful for young children who are wanting to read. It's also, or learning to read. It's also very helpful um, when you're reading this stuff aloud, you really get into the rhythm of it. And it's, you get, it's so fun. It's so pleasant to read because you're kind of, you know, you can just move right along with the beat. And you also, um, because the rhyming is so consistent, uh, it, it's very satisfying because you feel like you're sort of creating this poetry yourself as you are reading aloud. It's really just delightful. So we're going to take a look at a page. I called it the sleigh page because there are no um, there are no page numbers in this book. I actually don't know. Oh, this is when, oh my gosh, look at poor Max. Mm, this is when they are heading down the hill to go steal everything. They've got their bags and their sacks on the back of the sleigh here. So um, we have this. Again, this is uh, anapestic tetrameter in rhymed couplets. Then he loaded some bags and some old empty sacks on a ramshackle sleigh, and he hitched up old Max. Then the Grinch said, get up, and the sleigh started down toward the homes where the Who's lay a snooze in their town. It's so delicious. It's so, so good. I mean, yes, it's simplistic, but it's also really not. It's really very sophisticated. We're going to look why. So then he loaded, so you have that load, is the, the, the sort of long syllable. Then you have the ED, you know, the past participle ending, and then some bags. So you have bags there and some old empty sacks. So you have some and some. There's lots of repetition throughout, which again is going to help an early reader, but also you, it's providing, um, that repetition provides this nice kind of rhyming, kind of rhythmic um, repetition like a song. Uh, then he loaded some bags and some old empty sacks on a ramshackle sleigh and he hitched up old Max. So in this case, the, the rhyming couplet, the, the final words there are sacks and Max. So those are both assonant and consonant rhymes, meaning that the vowels rhyme and the uh, consonants rhyme. It's kind of a perfect rhyme. It's very simple on some level, but it's also just awesome. And then I have to point out like a ramshackle sleigh. So ramshackle is so good. It's almost an onomatopoeia kind of a situation. It sounds kind of like what it is. A little further on, then the Grinch said get up. So you have um, Grinch and get up. So you have that glottal there that's just like this voice glottal that's the g and the get up. It's really so good. And get up is, it's like giddy up, you know? Um, he says Santy, Santy Claus, and he says get up. There's some kind of, I don't know if that's regionalist. I don't really know what that is, or maybe it's 1950s, um, but you know, kind of like a giddy up kind of a thing. So we have repetition of sleigh. Then the Grinch said get up and the sleigh started down toward the homes where the Who's lay a snooze in their town. So here we have this internal rhyme um, where the Who's lay a snooze. Who's lay a snooze is just like, it's so satisfying. And you have this beautiful, um, the, again, you have the, um, the voiced and unvoiced sibilants here um, with the snooze. It's so, it's so kind of... Um, God, it's just, it's just beautiful. And again, here we have down and town. So these are our rhyming couplets. I'm going to read it again because it's so irresistible. Then he loaded some bags and some old empty sacks on a ramshackle sleigh and he hitched up old Max. Then the Grinch said get up and the sleigh started down toward the homes where the Who's lay a snooze in their town. 
it's so it's just unbelievable prose. It's sophisticated, and it's there's all sorts of different things happening. Um, but but it's also very simple and very appealing and really really fun to read. So there is also some variation, and it's a very nice kind of variation. It almost acts as a refrain. And I hadn't remembered this part, but it really was fun um, to come across it. So we have this um, repetition occasionally of four instances of, of, a, um, of, of a noun that's repeated. So it happens with noise, 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 and feast, 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 and sing, 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 sing. So you have these words that are repeated in, in there are three of them at least maybe more, but um, you have this kind of refrain and it breaks up some of these rhymed couplets, but I'd like to, I'd like to share it with you. For tomorrow he knew all the who girls and boys would wake bright and early, they'd rush for their toys. And then, oh, the noise, oh, the noise, 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 noise. That's one thing he hated, the noise, 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 noise. So I love this. I mean, when you keep repeating it, noise also becomes this very strange sounding word. So quick, quick um, foray into the illustrations, which we're not going to look at uh, too closely. But there's a strangeness and kind of a, like a weird kind of vegetal quality. Things are kind of, um, you know, it's a little bit like my hairdo I've got here. There's these kind of wacky like tendrils on things or, or weird, um, you know, sort of blooming things. And it's it's a susian is this word that we use my my sister and I for example use it a lot when we're talking about some of our favorite flowers. There's something um, very sort of Dr. Seuss about these kind of wild kind of organic kind of creatures with lots of tendrils or things with big puff balls or um, th this kind of unusual, very distinct, very identifiable um, sort of illustration. And for some reason, the word like noise, 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 noise is um, it, it's kind of of a piece with some of these strange drawings that are, are, are unique. And I think on some level, like not classically appealing. This is not like all of, you know, the copies of like Twas the Night Before Christmas, where you have, you know, the blue and the moonlight and the snow and the window sash and the, um, you know, the beautiful robe and the nightcap. I mean, it's not that kind of nostalgic, beautiful, soft focus, uh, you know, old school feel. In fact, it's these very stark line drawings on white that are kind of these very wild and very imaginative and fanciful creatures. And I really like the fact that a lot of the prose seems to echo that. So to close, I'm just going to read to you the very last couple of pages. Uh, and I'm, for those of you on the uh, on the YouTube, I'll show you the incredible illustration here with this. I think it's probably like a flugelhorn or some kind of exciting uh, thing like that. That, that the Grinch is playing as he is heading down. This, of course, is one of my favorite parts, probably everybody's favorite part of the uh, television adaptation. So, but here's the very, very ending of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light and he brought back the toys and the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch carved the roast beast. So I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the Grinch and are um, a little more appreciative of this classic. And you know, it's the time of the year to both feel grateful and to feel like singing and to feel good about things. It's also the time of the year to feel a little grinchy. So, um, you know, if you really want to dive into the grinchier part of yourself, just pick up this old favorite. I mean, it actually is so much fun to take a look at. Even, um, you know, I don't know, check out the sequel if you want to. Happy reading. Happy reading.